At a time when we are facing extremely serious environmental challenges across the globe, we tend to think about things such as reducing greenhouse emissions. And the world has become addicted to growth. There is relentless focus on GDP. We're told that jobs, prosperity, and the future happiness of all relies on growth. But is that true? And what does economics have to say about this? Well, to help us through this conversation, I have Philip Lorne online, and Philip is an associate professor at Torrens University, a research scholar at the Global Institute for Sustainable Prosperity, and a senior research fellow with the Centre for Full Employment and Equity at the University of Newcastle. Hello, Phil. Hi, Rod. Thanks for having me. Roy, well, let's talk about growth. Do we really need it? Ah, yes. We need it initially. Uh, We started with no economy. Uh, If we want no economy, or if you start with no economy, then you're not going to have an economy unless that economy grows. The question is, how big should it get? And how big can it get? Uh, Beyond which the natural environment can't provide the resources and assimilate the waste associated with growing the economy. Uh, to the point where it becomes ecologically sustainable. So, yes, growth up to a point is desirable, but growth beyond a certain point becomes undesirable. So the question is, are we at a point now where we've gone beyond that point where growth is desirable, where it's now no longer uh, desirable? And, in fact, I would argue, and a lot of ecological economists would argue, that not only have we grown beyond the point where it's where growth is desirable, we've grown the economy to a certain scale where it can no longer be ecologically sustained in the long run. Well, let's go into the ecological side of it in a moment. But first, I want to drill more into the benefits or the disadvantages of growth. So we in the Western world, we're doing very nicely. I'm sitting in a room here with lots of uh, computer equipment, camera gear and so on and so on. But that's me as a wealthy person in a Western country. What about somebody who was, say, living in the slums of one of the Asian cities or Middle East or South America? Depends on how the, uh, the goods and services produced as a consequence of or just economic activity, but, but growth of it are uh, distributed, who gets what. But in general, growth does. When, when the economy grows, there are more benefits but uh, there are also increased costs. And when growth becomes undesirable, the additional costs are exceeded, exceed the additional benefits. So there's no doubt if the economy grows, there are some additional benefits. The problem is that once the economy grows to the extent that everyone is, or most people within society are relatively well off, the additional benefits of further growth are small but the additional costs are very large. And, of course, our well-being is the difference between total benefits and total costs. So if the total benefits are going up at a very minimal rate as the economy grows, but the total costs, and these are social and environmental costs, are going up at a very rapid rate, then the difference between total benefits and total costs declines and we're worse off. So even though the gap between total benefit and total costs might be declining, the total benefits could be going up. So growth does. So people say, well, you know, when the economy grows, we get all these additional benefits. Yes, we do, but we incur additional costs. 
And we've, in a lot of uh, cases with a lot of wealthy countries, the additional costs are now exceeding the additional benefits to the point that it's making us worse off. Ecological economists like to make the distinction between economic growth and uneconomic growth. And economic, for something to be economic, it means that when you do more of it, uh, the additional benefits exceed the additional costs. Okay, well, one of the sales pitches of neoliberalism is trickle-down economics, that by making everybody richer, you'll make the poor people richer as well. Does that actually work? In some ways it can, but, I mean, it just doesn't automatically trickle down to the the poor and increasingly during the neoliberal era, most of the additional benefits. Now, of course, when I was talking about additional benefits being exceeded by additional costs where growth becomes uneconomic, I'm talking average across society. We can have a situation where a minority of the population enjoy a lot of the additional benefits, but they're able to live where in an, a relatively non-polluted, unpolluted place, and so they don't uh, experience the as, as many of the additional costs, and so their 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 well-being can go up at the expense of others. Uh, so uh, we can have a situation where, um, if we're relying upon trickle-down economics, where uh, we're not always going to have a situation where the net benefits of economic activity are necessarily trickling down to the poor. Phil, what's the trend in the wealth divide? Is the equity in society, the relative wealth of people, is that getting better or worse? Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a difficult question. It shouldn't be, but it is because a lot of the um, studies on distribution focus on income and there's a difference between income and wealth. So wealth is what you own. Income is what you, uh, at a particular point in time. Yeah. So, you know, my wealth is what is around me in my house. And, well, I might, I might own a house so here, there. That, that includes, else. if mainstream environmental economics ignores the natural capital, but ec- yeah. ecological economics does, but what's, what's been the impact of that? Are we running down the natural capital of the planet? Mm. Well, mainstream environmental economics doesn't ignore natural capital or natural resources, but it treats natural resources as if they're no different to other productive factors like labour and capital. So the general environmental economics, mainstream environmental economics uh, perspective is that it doesn't matter if you're running out of natural capital. It doesn't matter if there are fewer trees, fewer fish, uh, there's less iron ore to produce things made from steel and so forth, uh, as long as we're building up the stock of human-made capital, and by that I mean plant, machinery, equipment, and we're boosting the uh, labour force, they serve as adequate substitutes for natural resources. So all we have to do is maintain a stock of productive inputs. It doesn't really matter what the composition of that stock is. Ecological economists say there is a fundamental difference between capital and labour together. They are different, of course. Uh, human beings use capital, human-made capital, machines, plant, to transform natural resources into final goods and services. But there's a fundamental difference between natural capital, which provides a flow 
of resources and the labour and the human-made capital that transforms those resources into final goods and services. So if you're depleting natural capital, you have fewer resources long-term to transform into final goods and services. So it doesn't matter how much extra human-made capital you've got or how much extra labour you've got, uh, resources will become the limiting factor of production and you won't be able to produce as many goods and services in the future as you can in the present. If mainstream environmental economics ignores the limits to natural resources, is there a way to build that into the economy? Should we put a price on, say, carbon and other limited resources? Uh, Believe it or not, mainstream environmental economists also believe in putting a price on carbon, but they think that's all that's required. Now, what you tend to do uh, if you put a price on something because doing something is costly and it's not reflected in market prices is that certainly encourages uh, less carbon-intensive means of production because there's now a cost associated with generating CO2 and so forth, which is good, but the problem is that it doesn't prevent CO2 emissions from arising. And the reason for that is let's say a price is put on carbon and each year for a period of time uh, the carbon intensity of production, the volume of economic activity declines by 2%. But the volume of economic activity goes up by 4%. It goes up at a faster percentage rate than the reduction in the carbon intensity of economic activity, then carbon emissions will still rise. So all putting a price on something does, if if you're trying to internalise the cost of doing something, is it, it means you do something more efficiently, but efficiency is different to sustainability. When it comes to climate change, dealing with climate change is about limiting the total quantity of emissions. Uh, So what ecological economists uh, believe we should do is have, they're great believers in emissions trading systems. Now, a lot of people say, well, isn't there a problem there? Aren't they market-based? They do have a market element to them, but they are fundamentally cap-first auction trade systems. So the the, uh, ecological economists would say, rely upon what the science has to say, This is what emissions have to do. They have to be reduced over time. You set caps on emissions. And so, uh, for example, let's say uh, next year, let's just use a very simple number, the maximum emissions, if we're going to be on a pathway to 1.5 or degrees or 2 degree rise or what have you, we need next year's emissions to be at 100 then, and, uh, and that's 100 units, we'll just say 100 units, Uh, then we, uh, as a government, we would uh, auction off 100 permits, which represent one unit of carbon emissions. So you immediately limit emissions. So you you, you place a limit on the quantity of emissions. But, of course, because uh, anyone who wants to emit carbon has to purchase a permit, the price of the permit acts like a tax. So you not only set a ceiling on emissions, you also encourage uh, uh, greater technology with respect to 
reducing the emissions intensity of production. So you kill two birds with one stone. If you are, are there them. any countries around the world who are running such a scheme? And so I'm referring, I'm referring the, to the, the the capped version here, the yes. ecological economist version. Versus the, the mainstream environmental economics approach. Yes, well, there was the European Union emissions trading system, but it was a complete failure. Now, just because there is an emissions trading system in place doesn't mean it will necessarily work. You still have to design it properly. And the problem with the European emissions trading system is that they didn't put an adequate cap on uh, emissions. How difficult would it be to modify it to, to bring that in? Well, it's not difficult at all. Uh, it's 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 a bit like uh, Australia when it had a carbon tax, but many thought that the carbon tax was not sufficiently large enough, and it probably wasn't because it was seen to be doing something, but, of course, there's political opposition to having the tax at the rate it should be. Similarly, there was probably political opposition to having the uh, emissions in Europe capped at a certain level, so the cap was set too high. Don't you need uh, to give time. industry and business time to adapt to the new regime? Now, that's a good point. For example, there are a lot of countries, uh, if they were to overnight limit their emissions through a cap auction trade system to what is required to meet certain emissions targets, it could well lead to a collapse of their economies. And that's the consequence of uh, getting back to you know, growth and whether it's good or bad. A lot of economies of nations around the world having far exceeded not just what's desirable but their maximum sustainable scale. So you have to, uh, to avoid perhaps uh, triggering a collapse of their economies, you're going to have to gradually... So you, you may well, if you have a, an emissions trading system or a cap option trade system, set the cap too high somewhere it is at present and gradually bring it down, uh, which, of course, means, well, that just highlights the problem with having not dealt with this problem 40, 50 years ago. We've reached a point where we had have dealt with it 40, 50 years ago. Perhaps the level that the cap would have been set at would have been at the current level and it would have been ideal and we could have just then maintained it or reduced it. The fact that we've, many countries have gone beyond that, we now have the problem if we set the cap at what is required to meet all these emissions targets, it could lead to collapses of the economies. We've, so that sounds uh, extremely that sounds extremely serious given that well, we, it does because, we, we and pretty much run out of the, time. Yeah, it's mentioned in the book where, you know, the, uh, you can measure the ecological footprint of countries, which includes... Uh, greenhouse gas emissions and so forth, uh, and compare it to a nation's biocapacity. You can also do it at the global level. Uh, at the global level, the uh, global ecological footprint is about 1.7, 1.6, 1.7 times global biocapacity. So the global economy is about 70% larger than what can be sustained long-term. Uh, we passed the 100%. That's the point where the ecological footprint was equal to biocapacity about 50 years ago, around about the same time that the Limits to Growth report by the Club of Rome was, was released. Uh, and, of course, it's just continued to rise. So to bring this back is going to take time. But, of course, in the meantime, it means that we make it harder to uh, meet our various targets, whether it's climate change 
deforestation or what have you to bring it back to a level which can be ecologically sustained. And it will mean that we'll be left with a natural environment that won't be as healthy as it is now and, and not as healthy as it could have been if we had have started this process 50 years ago. Yes, and a lot of the damage cannot be undone. It's not just a matter of like a species that's been made extinct is gone forever and and you can't recreate it. Let's let's talk a little bit or briefly about modern monetary theory, and I want to avoid going into the detail of how it works because it's fairly complicated, but my understanding of modern monetary theory or the outcome of it is that governments don't have to be constrained by uh, money, by cap. I'm talking monetary, sovereign, national governments, not not local governments, but it removes the excuse. Oh, sorry, or even European Union nations, which oh, okay, yes, relegated themselves. Yeah, sorry. Yep, yeah. yep. But it, if, if I understand this correctly, it removes the excuse from the, these monetary sovereign countries uh, that they can't afford to spend money on environmental uh, causes. Is that true? That's true. So uh, if you think about it, let's, let's ignore money for the moment. If something is physically possible, then it can be done. Uh, and it is absurd to say that something that uh, uh, can be physically done cannot be done because there's not enough money to do it. Uh, there can be an inability to have the physical capacity to do something, but there can never be a lack of money. Well, there is for you and I because we're the user of a currency, but for an issuer of a currency, like a, a monetary sovereign central government, uh, as long as there are resources available for something to be done, it can be done. And those resources can be mobilised by that monetary sovereign creating the money, the domestic currency for itself, and putting those resources to use. All right. Well, given, given that access to money, what would governments do differently? Well, firstly, they, there is no excuse for a monetary sovereign to not utilise. Now, of course, we want to make sure we're operating with sustainable limits. So uh, we could be talking about idle resources that are being made available because we're extracting resources from the environment at an unsustainable rate. Well, we don't want to be in that situation, but assuming that we are using resources at a rate that is ecologically sustainable, then none of those resources need be left idle, uh, whether that be a human being uh, who's looking for work uh, or a natural resource or some form of human-made capital. So it could be, it's not it, the end of the world if a machine... So it could, uh, be, it could be funding university scientific research and so on, amongst other things, of course, speaking to people who have a vested interest in that. Yeah. Well, we can fund it. It's just, are there the resources to do it? To be, uh, so if you want to increase uh, the uh, number of universities and the amount of research being conducted by academics at universities and so forth, it's just a question if you've got the resources. Now, of course, if you don't have the resources, you can still increase it, but, it, of course, it will mean you will have to take resources away from somewhere else. Yep. And the way governments do that, of course is that they obtain the resources by spending, but uh, they free up those resources by taxing us. Now, so we don't demand as many of those resources right. if, they're, if they're fully utilised. But, of course, 
in a country like Australia, resources for about 45, 50 years haven't been fully utilised. The resources are available for use. We know that because we've had unemployment for 45, 50 years. If I understand correctly too, Phil, the purpose of taxation in modern monetary theory is not to earn revenue for the government, it's to suck money out of the economy and you could do it in a very selective, refined way if you need to. How does that play into this story? Well, um, one of the reasons why modern monetary theory is important from an ecological economic perspective is that uh, not only to achieve ecological sustainability, well, to achieve it, we need, we need to limit the rate at which we use resources and generate waste so it's within the regenerative and waste assimilative capacities of the natural environment. All right, that's how you operate sustainably. But you could operate sustainably by trashing the economy and making life miserable for people. So you still need to do various things with the resources that are available within the sustainable limit. So you want to use the resources in the most effective way. Uh, we, we, and when I say we, I'm really talking about human beings generally across the world, uh, have developed an infrastructure that is primarily based around fossil fuels. We have to completely alter and retrofit the infrastructure so that it's uh, reliant upon renewable energy. Uh, that's going to take a lot of investment. A lot of those capital goods that will be required uh, will have what is referred to as public goods characteristics. And I won't go into any great detail about public goods other than the private sector uh, finds it difficult to provide public goods profitably. So that's why governments tend to provide public goods. So a lot of this investment will be in uh, green infrastructure that will have public goods characteristics. It will have to be conducted by governments and, of course, the question that a lot of people are going to immediately ask is, where is the government going to get the money to do that? And, of course, if the central government is a monetary sovereign, that's not an issue. <laughs> so uh, ecological economics and ecological economists need to have an understanding of modern monetary theory because there are even a lot of ecological economic economists who are asking that question. Where is the government going to find them? Because they don't understand modern monetary theory. So they're asking the same question. We need all this green infrastructure, but where's the government going to get the money to do that? Well, that's not the question. Uh, so uh, modern monetary theory is very, an understanding of it's very important, uh, not so much to achieve ecological sustainability, but if we're going to have an ecologically sustainable world, how are we going to have a world that can also meet the needs and requirements of people? Because we'll need to completely alter the infrastructure to be relied upon renewable energy instead of fossil fuels, and that will require massive investment in public goods. Yeah, oh, that's good. I, I think I understand the short version is that it removes a constraint that is commonly seen to be there. Uh, yes. Are there any uh, other things that you just want to mention before we close up? We've covered quite a lot of ground today. I guess my main concern is with the fact that a lot of people don't understand why we are, because we're in the midst of an ecological crisis. We're not, it's, it's not something that's about to occur or something that's going to occur in the future. You know, when I was young, it used to be said, if we keep doing X, Y and Z, 
then all these environmental problems again, that, those days are over. We're in the midst of it. Uh, so that's not something that's going to happen. It's going to get worse if we don't do the right thing, but we're in the midst of it now. Um, and a lot of people don't really understand why we're in that crisis. People think that if I just endure that I separate my rubbish in you know, the correct stuff in the recycling bin and, do, uh, and I do things that um, might be regarded as looking after the environment, uh, then we can move to an ecologically sustainable world. The problem that we have as a species, human beings as a species, is that we've grown our economies and, of course, to main, even just to maintain our economies at their present physical scale, things wear out, we consume things, that's just a fact of life, that creates waste, those goods have to be replaced. As I mentioned, uh, resources are a unique form of productive input. We need to use resources. Our environmental problem is an overshoot problem. We've grown our economies beyond what can be ecologically sustained. So we will have to reduce our, as a species, our level of consumption well, and, and production. Our, our consumption relates, of course, yes. to our population as well. We yes. didn't talk and just about one thing. population. We already have, we will exist in a, in a world where a lot of people are deprived of the basic necessities. So distribution, redistribution is going to be central to where we move as we, if we move towards a sustainable economy. So distribution is going to be very, very important. It's not just a matter of trickle down. It's going to be removing, taking stuff from those who've got more than enough uh, and giving to those who don't have enough. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that those who've already got a lot are going to be worse off because the genuine progress indicator, which is a measure of when I was talking about the extra benefits and extra costs and so whether growth is economic and uneconomic, if, if the GPI is going up, it means growth is economic. And if the GPI is going down, the genuine progress indicator, it means growth has become uneconomic. So a lot of this additional stuff that the wealthy are getting is not making them better off. Uh, so taking some of that stuff away from them and giving them to the poor will certainly make the poor better off, but it won't necessarily make the wealthy better off who are not gaining these additional benefits. And, and in fact, we have multimillionaires who are committing suicide. Yes, uh, it's, so it's like, far more than just consumption. It's about meaning and purpose to life. And if we focus on that and we just have enough and we have good quality stuff, we can all have a, a meaningful existence and we can all operate uh, sustainably. Although th there is one other, just one final thing, right? I, if I'm running over time. And, of course, that's the number of people on earth uh, in the chapter that uh, Stephen and uh, Williams and myself uh, produced, I suggested, I, I just do a little a bit of an exercise and suggest that because we're early next year, the world's population will pass through the 8 billion mark. And, uh, well, that's this little exercise I did suggested at probably the most uh, that 4 billion people is the maximum sustainable, but it may well be closer to... Two billion. So uh, we've got to deal with the population issue, which of course is always a controversial issue, but it is something that yes. Uh, well, that you, given the the amount of environmental damage that we are now doing, the number of sustainable uh, the population that's sustainable on the planet is probably actually declining as we speak. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yes. Well. Well. Uh, well yeah. Sorry. If, if, can I? Well, yeah. I, I, uh, <laughs> 
Well, Phil, it's, it's, uh, we, we, we have covered a lot of ground. It's been fascinating, and I, I learned a lot from talking to you. Thank you very much for your time. No problem.